0: American Vapor Manufacturers Association, episode 24 of Shaping Vaping. Today, we're very excited to be speaking with Azeem Chowdhury from Kellern Heckman in Washington, D.C. His firm represented BD Vapor in the recent 11th Circuit victory. And so we're very excited to talk with him today about that case and what it means for the industry moving forward. Uh, Today, as co host, we have Greg Conley with us. Uh, Greg is the Director of External and Legislative Affairs for American Vapor Manufacturers Association. Uh, Welcome to you both and happy to have you today.
1: Thank you,
2: Amanda.
1: And it is a pleasure to be joined by Azeem, who can off his uh, turn on his microphone in the bottom left-hand corner, by the way, uh, because Azeem, um, when he was probably nearly fresh out of law school and I myself was in law school, he was one of the first lawyers that came up and introduced himself. So, Azeem, thanks for being here. Maybe tell people tuning in about your career at Keller & Heckman.
3: Sure, sure. Well, well first, thank you both for having me and for for ABM for Hosting this session, uh, happy to be here. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Greg. I, I think we we uh, we go way back <laughs> to the early days of um, vaping in the, in the United States. Um, as you mentioned, I have been um, practicing in this in this category for uh, really my entire career um, since two thousand and seven. I think is when I first started looking into these issues, and um, you know, I was I, you know, I I started my career as an attorney um, focusing on on corporate issues and and securities laws and and kind of fell into uh, FDA regulation um, almost by accident. Um, And that was around the same time that um, e-cigarettes were first coming to to the market. And I was um, automatically intrigued by the technology, um, having, uh, I never smoked myself, but my, my father was a smoker for many years. And I recall him as a as a child. I recall uh, my my dad having uh, uh, you know a difficult time uh, for many years uh, quitting smoking. And so you know when I first came across these uh, these these products, probably in you know 2008 2009, I, I immediately you know wanted to figure out how this could all be regulated. What would FDA do? Uh, and I've been you know on the ground floor working with companies since then.
0: Great. Thank you, Azim. You've done incredible work in this space over the years, and you've helped many companies uh, prepare and file their PMTAs, and now you're on the the back end helping companies defend those PMTAs in court. I wonder if uh, we might get started by you just walking us through uh, how FDA handled the applications that were subject of the suit.
3: Sure. So, as I'm sure folks on here uh, know well, um, under the Tobacco Control Act and and then the the deeming rule, uh, any e-cigarettes or product that contains uh, nicotine uh, became subject to those requirements. Um, and particularly the the main one being the requirement for pre-market authorization um, in 2016. Um, the, the 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 what that means is any new product that's not grandfathered. And grandfathered, actually, uh, the new term, the the new terminology is uh, pre-existing products. So, excuse me, um, any pre-existing products that are on the market since uh, 2007, since February 2007, are are essentially, um, uh, they're exempt from the pre-market review provisions of the statutes. But anything new, anything introduced after that date has to be authorized and determined to be appropriate for the protection of public health to to be uh, marketed, um, of course, deeming came in 2016, and e-cigarettes then subsequently became subject to the requirements. But of course, um, there were no there were no pre-existing products that, that could avoid the pre-market uh, process. Um, but because of the uh, of the sort of retroactive application of that uh, pre-existing or grandfathering um, requirement the FDA created what they called a compliance policy whereby they would allow products that were on the market to remain on the market and um, until such time as the applications actually became due. Um, And as you know, those deadlines for the PMTA shifted um, uh, over the years uh, following FDA guidance and litigation from the public health groups and uh, finally landed on September 2020. once you know and there was a mad rush i mean of course this was during covid and it was a a a, a crazy time um but um uh, despite what most people probably assumed including i would probably assume fda as well um uh, not expecting uh, the small and the small businesses in this industry to really have any um ability to to put forward applications despite you know those um, um
0: uh, those assumptions,
3: the industry came together and filed over 6.7 million applications, or applications covering over 6.7 million products, um, and uh, really did a good job, I think, uh, of, of giving FDA critical information, um, submitting acceptable applications that met the standard for the in many cases. Um, what happened after that, of course, is the FDA was um, completely inundated. They, a, they were not set up to to really um, take it on and evaluate that many applications. Just to give you an example, prior to that, I think there had only been a handful of PMTs submitted by big tobacco companies, uh, none for, for e-cigarettes or ENDS products, uh, and those on average took eight months to two years to review. Um, and here now we had millions of applications for, for these products. Obviously, these, these applications were not nearly as, as comprehensive in many cases as the big tobacco applications. But nonetheless, FDA um, um, was really in a difficult situation, um, uh, not being able to properly um, uh, address these applications. Um, what they ended up doing, uh, and, and we've recently learned through different um, foyer requests and memos that have that have come to light um they shifted quite a bit during this year so between 2020 and 2021 when they were reviewing the applications and and you know had this goal of completing their review by september 2021 uh we, we what we've now learned is that they've they, internally fda uh was was going back and forth on how to deal with the with the applications you know um and where they ultimately landed was what we call the fatal flaw approach um, particularly for flavored or non-tobacco flavored products uh, pmtas for for anything other than um, tobacco or menthol flavor Um, if those applications didn't contain a specific type of study Either a randomized controlled trial or a longitudinal cohort study or something similarly robust uh, and reliable, comparing the flavor, the benefit of the flavored product to a tobacco, to, to, to a tobacco flavored product.
0: online here. Uh, Greg, do you have any thoughts about what Azim shared so far while we're waiting for Azim to get reconnected?
1: Yeah, so I was just thinking the other day about predictions and the percentage of people that have been correct and wildly off base about their predictions. And one person I was thinking of was David Dobbins, of, uh, formerly of the Truth Initiative. And David Dobbins, about three years ago, it was pre-COVID, I feel like, at least six months before COVID, I asked a question at a FDLI conference to him uh, where I said, if the FDA receives dozens or hundreds of PMTAs, do you think they are capable of reviewing it? And Dobbins, however, right. the prognosticator, Dobbins replied, oh, he laughed and said, I don't think we're even going to receive that many PMTAs. So uh, that just shows you that within the tobacco control community, they all thought that the vapor industry was just going to lay down and die and hand things off to big companies. And as Azim is in the middle of explaining, uh,
3: that did not happen. Yeah. Hey, sorry, guys, I'm back. I have no idea when I got cut off. <laughs> I was just talking. Um, so
1: you had gotten to fatal flaw review.
3: OK, OK, well, yeah, so I think you probably completed my thought, uh, Greg. But um, essentially, FDA, in, in light of this decision and they issued, or in light of the fact that they had millions of applications they had no way of actually reviewing on time or in their minds on time, um, they issued the, this internal memo from the then acting commissioner um, instructing the CTP Office of Science to um, um, conduct this fatal flaw, meaning if, if, a, if a non-tobacco-flavored application Uh, did not contain these specific types of of long-term studies demonstrating the benefit of the flavor over a tobacco flavor, the PMCA was automatically denied. Um, And, of course, that meant FDA was not going to spend any time reviewing the application itself, um, including the marketing and sales restrictions plans, which ultimately ended up being the reason for uh, the, the decision from the 11th Circuit.
0: Yeah, right. That's right. That was ultimately what was at issue in the majority opinion in this case. Uh, Well, there was a really good analogy they used that, you know, a judge couldn't um, not try a case just because he thought the defendant was already guilty. Something along those lines. Um, So can you sort of explain to us the court's reasons for remanding these applications back to the FDA?
3: Yeah, I think the, the, the decision here was actually quite simple. Right. The court. I mean, there are a lot of in the briefing and during the oral arguments there are a lot of issues, a lot of legal arguments that were that were raised. But um, uh, the court kept it very simple. Right. Under the Administrative Procedure Act, which is the law that governs the FDA and agency decisions and their decision making process, the um, FDA must consider. All of the relevant evidence before it, and the court highlighted in the opinion how going back to the 2016 draft guidance, to the to the to the deeming rule, to the PMCA final guidance that came out, you know, after the fact, um, to their enforcement priorities guidance in 2020, FDA and in all the public meetings, et cetera, FDA had consistently. Made clear that marketing and sales access restriction plans were key components uh, of the PMTA and would go directly toward a company being able to demonstrate whether or not its product was appropriate for the protection of public health. Um, So the opinion basically states, and FDA admits, in in, in these particular cases um, that the petitioners filed in the 11th Circuit, um, FDA um, admitted that they did not review those plans. It made clear in their in their boilerplate MDO and in the um, the uh, corresponding technical memos, technical project memos, um, that they did not review these these plans, which they had, you know, before made very clear were were critical. And so, therefore, because the agency had not considered that relevant information. Um, the MDOs were, were arbitrary and capricious, um, and they therefore set aside or, or essentially vacated and remanded back to FDA for further review.
1: And right now, we have a FDA that has allowed Imperial Brands' blue product to remain on the market despite receiving an MDO not getting a court injunction, not getting uh, any, uh, any formal relief from FDA, and they've done nothing. Uh, so that then brings up the question, uh, other companies that have received MDOs over the last 12 months, uh, there was only a limited window of time for them to seek uh, official court review, uh, an appeal of their MDO um what is the or is there a path forward uh, possibly for any of the companies that have previously been shut down that did not file within the time window now that the 11th circuit has said well at least in these six unique cases it was wrong and illegal for what FDA did
3: yeah that's a great question so um the the time frame that is set forth in the Tobacco Control Act, I think it's Section 912, says essentially that following the denial of a PMTA, a company has 30 days to seek judicial review um, in, in the Court of Appeals, their, their local home court of appeals. Um, so you can go essentially go straight to the appellate court. You bypass the whole district court uh, initial step. Um, but you only have thirty days from that denial to to take advantage of that. So, I don't know if 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 a company, if you received an MTO many months ago or last year, and you didn't file a a, a judicial uh, re- or a petition for review in your circuit court of appeals, you, you're probably still out of luck in seeking that particular avenue um, of relief. However, uh-huh there is still the administrative relief process where you can essentially internally go back to FDA, not go to the courts, but go to FDA either through, and there's various mechanisms. There's petitions, um, there's citizen petitions, there's uh 1075 administrative appeals, um, which have, which have no deadline. So you could certainly, and I recommend companies who received MDOs even a year ago, um, to consider filing administrative appeals with FDA, um, highlighting this decision from the Eleventh Circuit, and and particularly if you if you happen to be a company located in the Eleventh Circuit, which I believe is Florida, Georgia, and um, possibly Alabama, I'd have to check. Then I would definitely um, consider filing at least an administrative appeal, um, and and those types of decisions, particularly if they're petitions, um, could end up. Uh, you know, if FDA denies them, there could be ways to, to to seek a review of those denials of the petitions in court. So, again, none of that technically means even if you sought review at this stage uh, that you can that, that selling them staying on the market and selling would be would be permitted um, absent a stay from FDA, an administrative stay of the MDO. Um, but. To, to to Greg's point you know earlier with respect to the Fonten product for example um, there's clearly an enforcement issue right because my understanding of that product and that application is they had sought administrative review and then um, I'm assuming it didn't go their way and then they're, they're now they're seeking judicial review um, and and their request for a, a court ordered stay of, the, of that MDO was denied so there's You know, the sale of that product should not – is not legal. And um, if it's still on the market, it's because there's just lack of enforcement of that.
1: Yeah, and I'll just note that it was pretty remarkable that Reuters did a whole piece about uh, companies selling products without PAs or without FDA review – And lo and behold, because Reuters, the Reuters reporter apparently does not read Jim McDonald's work at Vaping 360, he was completely unaware that there was a product with a much larger market share uh, that was completely left out of things, lo and behold. Uh, But on the subject of administrative reviews, and then we'll get back to the 11th Circuit. So we've had a year uh, almost of companies filing um, appeals administratively in your knowledge, and I don't know how much you've had to deal with this, has there been any? Have there been responses from FDA to those administrative functions?
3: Nothing substantive that I'm aware of, and i you know I'm, I'm only aware of the ones that, that we've handled. But we, we have filed um, 1075 appeals um, for companies that received MDOS for their flavored products. Um, we filed 1075s for companies that. Um, got a got denials for their menthol flavored products um which really should have been separately categorized as as non-tobacco um or separate from the flavored products um and i think other than some initial feedback that they would be uh, reviewed at some point um in the near future i i have not seen a decision from with respect to those appeals so one thing we're working on now for our clients, I think anyone who who did file a ten seventy five or some other appeal earlier, um, it would be a good idea to to amend or supplement that appeal now with the new details from the eleventh circuit, the new the new opinion, um, and highlight that to the extent that you your PMTA included a marketing plan that was not reviewed. This, this opinion is directly relevant and sh- argues that FD should have done so, and, and otherwise uh, the MDO was arbitrary.
0: Yeah, you know, that, that brings up several issues. You know, number one, I can say over at AVM, uh, Azim, you helped us file many of those 1075s for our members, and the correspondence that we received from Mitch Zeller <clears throat> Was that they would issue a decision on those appeals in late January, early February of this year? Of course, uh, that date is long passed with with no further correspondence from FDA. And so, one of the things that we've talked about doing is is going back and supplementing those 1075s with this right. new information out of the Eleventh Circuit. And so, for for anybody under the ABM umbrella, I would say you know keep an eye out for that because that's something we'll be starting on very soon. Um, but but I am. A further question. So there were um, five companies that were a part of, of this ruling in the 11th. Is that correct?
3: I think there were six, actually. Uh, six. Total. Yep.
0: Okay. So for those, for those companies that got this relief, that had their applications remanded back to the FDA, um, how do you anticipate FDA dealing with those applications going forward? And what can those companies be doing in the interim to strengthen their applications?
3: yeah so a couple of things here um i think so fda has fda has the ability to appeal uh this decision uh from the 11th circuit uh and there are a couple of ways they could do that they could seek uh review from the 11th circuit itself something called an en banc review where essentially they ask the fda would ask the entire court to uh look at this decision and and um make an argument that it was issued an error. Um, they could also potentially seek review by the Supreme court. Um, and so there's a question as to whether or not that may whether, whether or not that's uh, that would, that would work in this case. Um, I know we're looking at this closely on behalf of Biddy vapor and, and preparing for a potential uh, appeal or, or, or a, or a, a, a or petition for review to to the Supreme Court. Um, I think the the en banc review decision, I think FD has until beginning of October, I think 45 days from the um, decision here to make that decision to appeal. I think they have 90 days to decide whether they want to seek the Supreme Court. So there's a bit of time um, before that happens and before the judgment, I think, is entered uh, finally with the court. But, um, or the FDA could decide not to seek administrative, not to seek an appeal uh, of this decision. Uh, they could decide to, to do kind of what the dissent in the opinion argued, which is let's just go ahead and re-review these PMTAs and issue MDOs that uh, basically deny the applications again, if that's the way that FDA wants to go. Um, so, but to answer your question, Amanda, uh, to the extent that those companies can Amend their PMTAs to include additional evidence that their products are not being used by youth, that they that their marketing and sales restriction plans um, do an adequate job of preventing youth access and ensuring adults and adult smokers are the ones getting their applications um, to, to the extent they can include um, Data, uh, scientific data, behavioral data, for example, on, on, on how their products are being used on the market or the likelihood of use of their products from different populations, of course, those types of things would would, would go a long way in, in helping their products um, get through the PMTA process.
1: Yeah, and I'll add that there's almost a third option that goes along with the the idea of not appealing, which is that... Jim McDonald of Vaping 360 also reported one of the court cases in the Ninth Circuit, a company whose name starts with an A, I believe. The FDA kept wanted to apparently stay out of court on that PMTA. So they said you get we agree to the non enforcement against your PMTA products. And we don't expect to re, to start, I believe they said we don't expect to start reviewing your products again until early twenty twenty four and not have a decision. Until early 2025. So, if FDA, uh, it, it would seem to be um, unusual, but there's no precedent really here for FDA to bring these applications back immediately deny them when other people are saying, "Oh, it's going to take till 2025." But we shall see.
3: Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think I think um, if you if these applications go to the back of the queue at FDA it could be a long time and that and I'm familiar with that just that that uh case in the ninth circuit uh I think you're right FDA is is in the process of re-reviewing that application um based on an internal request administrative request and and they've agreed to put the ninth circuit case in abeyance while they do that re-review which they've said now is going to take until 2024 2025. Uh, In the meantime they have a stay of the MDO, which allows them to keep selling the products. So, yeah, I think I think if, if FDA does decide to appeal this case, it's because they don't like the fact that uh, you know they have a decision going against them. When they do have the Fifth Circuit, the D.C. Circuit, and I just heard a few minutes ago um, there was a decision in the in the Seventh Circuit uh, case, the Griphim, um that went against company um, in FDA. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but my understanding is they, they ruled in favor of FDA. So there's clearly a number of circuits that are going a different direction than the 11th Circuit, and that's that's going to be an issue as well, as how that impacts all of this.
1: And of right, course, and- hanging, up, and I'll just add, hanging over all of these, all of FDA's thoughts, seemingly uh, even before this whole controversy has been a fear that many government agencies have increasingly of putting their deference up for review at the Supreme court level, where a decision, a negative decision by the Supreme court could have downscale impacts on every other regulatory agency and government and all other priorities. So um, if maybe, if you could talk a little bit about deference and, and in rulemaking and regulatory functions and how FDA may be um, a little cautious about some of these cases.
3: Yeah, I think there's a lot that FDA has to consider here. Um, And, you know, this, this is, you know, part of their long term strategy here, and and they have to decide what what is it? What's it worth to them? Uh, On the one hand, um, I'm not sure if this is necessarily Supreme Court cert worthy at this point Um, just because there are different that the the main factor that would that would seem to indicate that the Supreme Court might be interested is is the fact that there is this so-called circuit split where the different circuit courts are going in different directions Um, but it it could be that the way this is viewed by the Supreme Court is just a different application of of a different set of facts being applied to uh, the law and one thing that the Eleventh Circuit did was distinguish the other um, uh, decisions from the Fifth Circuit and the D.C. Circuit based on the facts, and, and, and made uh-huh. clear that based on the set of facts presented here, these these cases, these applications, um, the FDMDOs were were arbitrary, but not necessarily the case in the other in the other cases. Um, similarly, with the Supreme, with the um, uh, for FDA, if they if they ended up deciding to re-review these cases, or sorry, the PMTAs, then I think that's, a, that's a, it's a tough question to answer because the issue is how 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 does this change? How does the Eleventh Circuit decision change FDA's overall strategy? Because they they do seem to be winning most of the cases, and I fully anticipate. And I expect that the attorneys who are representing the other uh, cases will seek appeals, um, the same way FDA may seek may seek here, and would highlight the Eleventh Circuit decision um, as as one reason why uh, FDA should not continue to ban these products um, or should, should continue to, continue to deny these PMTAs. So I'm not sure if I answer your question, Greg, but the long story short, I mean, the FDA has to consider uh, if if it's easier for them to just put these four or six cases um, back into the review cycle and um, uh, just keep pursuing the other cases and, and based on the facts of those PMTAs, whether or not sufficient marketing restrictions were in place, continue to... You know, take the position that fatal flaw was appropriate in those cases, um, or if it um, if it's worth it to them to try to seek a review on banc or at the Supreme Court um, because they're afraid that this decision could have a, a bigger impact um, than these six companies um, and could result in additional appeals, particularly with the upcoming or the ongoing synthetic nicotine applications. Um, how does this now change that? I mean, if, if, if this decision helps to go against the fatal flaw review, if the, if the FDA actually reviews the synthetic nicotine applications, does that mean that um, if applications are accepted and filed, that FDA won't try to – will be foreclosed from, from implementing a fatal flaw review – or will they have to review all the applications and the marketing plans and provide, you know, individualized MDOs? That, to me, is, is a big part of FDA's uh, thinking here, is how is this going to potentially impact all of the, you know, I think, million-plus synthetic nicotine PMTs that, that have now been filed?
0: Right. You bring up a good point, Azim. So really, I have a, another question. But just really quickly for our audience, we're about halfway through our time here. And you know, we would love to have any members of our audience uh, raise their hand in this space and ask questions or make comments for Azeem. Um, certainly, this topic is of timely interest to everyone. So don't be shocked about raising your hand to ask a question or make a comment i see we've got some folks in here uh, that were a party to this case in the 11th circuit Jim Mcdonald's in the audience so if anybody has questions feel free to hop in uh, so um, you brought up the synthetic nicotine applications and one thing that we've noticed so far is that fda seems to be a lot more heavy-handed in doling out refuse to accept letters and I'm wondering if you think that may as a result of their with the MDOs in the tobacco-derived applications that maybe they're trying to weed some of these out earlier to avoid some of these litigation problems they've had.
3: No, it definitely seems that's what's happening here. Um, I've heard of of people getting their PMTAs refused um, to be accepted for various reasons, technical issues, problems with these spreadsheets and forms. Um, And in some cases, FDA uh, Really, did not inform industry of of updated uh, templates and things of that nature. So, um, before I guess, at a higher level, just taking a step back here, you know, when it comes to the synthetic nicotine PMTAs, technically, right, you you had you had until May fourteenth to submit an application on time um, for a synthetic nicotine product. That getting an application in by that date bought you an additional sixty days until july 13th to essentially not worry about enforcement Um, after july 13th uh, which was now what six weeks ago fda has uh the ability to enforce against any synthetic nicotine product on the market um subject to their discretion right and the public health groups are are pushing fda you know to basically regardless of pmta status Enforce income and enforce companies with synthetic nicotine off the market because technically under the statute, they could do so Um, FDA seems to at least be um, Prioritizing enforcement uh, Against companies that did not submit PMTAs at all. That's what it seems. So in terms of when I say enforcement, I mean getting a warning letter, right? So the companies that have received warning letters, which is the first step of the enforcement process. Um, it was because it seems because they, they they failed to submit a PMTA at all by the, by the, by the deadline or just for the synthetic nicotine product at all. Um, but w- if you did submit a PMTA for those products, it looks like FDA is going through their, you know, uh, step-by-step phase approach to reviewing the application. But they're being, as you mentioned, Amanda, they're being very heavy handed, right? They're, they're not coming back and giving companies a chance to make corrections to minor mistakes, you know, like not not, in, not submitting the right Excel spreadsheet or um, some other kind of technical uh, detail that was missed. Um, they're going straight to a refuse to accept. Um, and I think, I mean, they may be doing that to a, avoid litigation, so to speak, uh, because then you know, you're not dealing with the MDO because you're not even, the application hasn't even been accepted, But I mean, there's an argument there for those companies who have received refusals for things like the Excel spreadsheet not being the most recent version um, that those companies might consider challenging FDA because I think there's a good, you know, fair notice issue. You know, FDA, we looked at this for one company, uh, they didn't update that form 4057B spreadsheet until a few days before the applications were due. And and ended up denying companies for for not having the right form among among other reasons. So if you're one of those companies, or if there's groups of companies out there that have received those types of refusals, I think we should really consider your legal options there because that might be you know there might be arguments there that that FDA is breaking the law um, and not not allowing those companies to rectify those types of mistakes or not giving enough notice for, for sudden changes in the, in the, in the forms.
0: Excellent point. Uh, Given that companies have such a short window, you know, only 30 days to appeal these decisions and that's a huge step to take. What, what should companies be considering when they're weighing whether or not to pursue um, a legal challenge to FDA decisions?
3: Well, remember (laughs) the 30 day window applies to the PMTA denial. So, so an MDO would trigger that that provision in, in the Tobacco Control Act. Um, I don't know if a refuse to accept, for example, or a refuse to file um, determination before you know, scientific review or before an MDO review would necessarily be subject to that 30-day window. So it could be that if you do get an RTA You have a couple of options, right? You could potentially go straight to a district court and file a complaint with FDA or file a complaint with the court saying that FDA did not provide fair notice or made some other mistake in violation of the APA, um, arbitrary mistake that requires judicial review. Um, You could do the administrative appeal process, uh, which, again, could be a 1075 or 10 uh, 10 10.30 citizen petition um, asking the fda to reconsider uh, their decision their rta or rtf Um, i think those types of how you want to proceed if you're in 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 that boat um you should probably talk to a a lawyer and, and and figure out what what's the best case what's the best type of argument you can make and obviously your financial resources I know that for AVM, if I can say so, Amanda, we are considering um, various sort of industry options, you know, a petition, for example, on behalf of companies that, that all received the same type of RTA for technical mistake. Um, or pot- potentially, when it comes back to the 11th Circuit decision, a petition that would uh, essentially say, hey, all of these MDOs were, were denied were issued for the same basic reason as the court in the 11th Circuit held was arbitrary. And so FDA needs to reconsider all of these. Um, I I think that's something that we're we're looking into, Um, but it's something that that a company should should, should definitely consider.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Um, Greg, did you have any other questions? I'm not seeing uh, anybody in the audience raising their hand with questions. Uh, Greg, you got anything?
1: I did not. I think we covered the topic well, and Zim, um, I want to thank you for your years of efforts in this field, and Jim McDonald has popped up.
0: Let's see. I think the team is working on promoting Jim to speaker here, so we'll just uh, give that a moment. Oh, there there we go.
2: Uh, can you hear me? Okay, yes. good. Thanks for the call outs, by the way, uh, Greg, your $4 check is in the mail. Um, so I have a question about the process by which the Supreme Court could um, look at this. Is this going, Does this require one of the parties to one of these uh, challenges, either the, either the FDA itself in the 11th Circuit or one of the companies in the other circuits, to request a review by the Supreme Court? Or could the Supreme Court somehow take this on themselves because they're split on the circuits? Uh,
3: that's a great question. Um, I, I, I don't. I think that this most likely, if this is going to be reviewed by the Supreme Court, would be uh, following a, a petition from one of the parties um, that has lost the case. As you as you know, Jim, uh, I think it was in the Sixth Circuit that uh, a company called Breeze Smoke, um, who filed a petition to challenge their MDO back in uh, September 2021, um, they they also filed a, a, a motion to stay their MDO and lost. And they attempted to go to the Supreme Court at that stage, you know, with respect to the stay order uh, or the stay denial and uh, the Supreme Court, there's a procedure that I'm not an expert on that where they um, have certain justices, uh, you know, review a petition and there's some, you know, voting that happens behind closed doors and they decide whether or not to to uh, accept it for, you know, re- review by the whole court. Um, and I think what ended up happening there was they actually did request that FDA uh or the, which could, because FDA because Smoke was a company that appealed, they requested FDA to provide their uh, response to that uh, cert petition, and ultimately ended up denying it. Uh, I don't believe there was an opinion attached to that, but they just they just denied the the uh, the request. So, you know, I think in general it's very hard to get a case before the Supreme Court. I think they only accept one percent of all the you know cases that are that are reviewable by them um and so you know so far they don't there's not there's not a strong record that indicates that they would look at this case um if there was an appeal again now we have more of a circuit split you know with the 11th circuit decision versus the other circuits so that may make it more appealing um but again it's it's it really depends. And, you know, we've looked at this. Our litigation team has looked at this. And frankly, you know, it looks like um, unless there's a really novel legal interpretation here, um, there's an argument to be made that these, the difference between the 11th Circuit and the other circuits are really fact-specific and not uh, some novel interpretation of the law. Um, and so it may be that, you know, the Supreme Court wouldn't be interested in this at all.
2: Yeah. So follow-up question, what happens if there's a circuit split and the Supreme court
3: doesn't look that's a great question. Um, we're thinking about that, you know, what, what does this mean? You know, if you're a company, the 11th circuit and you know, you, you, um, the, the the law technically in that circuit is, is what the, the, what the decision from that court is, which is FDA has to review the, the entire application, including marketing plans. Um, You know, every company, the 11th Circuit should definitely (laughs) file an administrative appeal or 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 talk to a lawyer about about how how to otherwise challenge an MDO, because there's an argument there that applies in that circuit. Um, But there's you know, then there's other decisions from other circuits. So, again, I think it really comes down to um, it, it might be the way to figure this out is through a petition process where we, we argue that, um, you know, the 11th Circuit decision is, is one that is broad enough to cover e- anyone's MDO. And it shouldn't make sense for a company in Florida to, to have their PMT reviewed more thoroughly than a company in, in California. So it's a, good, it's a good question, Jim. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's just going to cause more confusion and, and FDA is, and the Department of Justice are probably trying to figure this out themselves yeah. right now as part of their um, decision making process on whether to appeal this. Um, but that, that, that's a great question. I mean, I think we're going to have a real issue here, and it's just, with everything in this industry, going to cause a lot more confusion.
2: I've noticed that um, on a couple occasions, Jonathan Adler, the law professor from Case Western Reserve, Has said that you know he thinks it's possible that the Supreme Court will have a look at soon. Mm -hmm. I just wondered what that process was.
3: I mean, yeah, I mean, it's—I don't know if this is a big enough issue, you know, when the Supreme Court is dealing with obviously big, you know, uh, societal issues and challenges. Um, But it's—it's certainly possible. Again, I'm not—I'm not a Supreme Court expert by any means, but. Um, I would be surprised if they did that. I think there would have to be a strong petition um, requesting that, that that differentiates this um, from the Brie Smoke case, and uh, but it's certainly a possibility in, in this industry. You know, you you never know. Right. Thank you. No
0: problem. All right. I don't see anyone else uh, with their hand up to ask a question. So if you do have a burning question, go ahead and get that hand up pretty soon. Um, but Azim, I wanted to thank you for hopping on today and, and helping everyone sort of unpack and digest everything that's going on with these different rulings coming out of these various circuits. I think in this space, the one thing that is always a guarantee is more litigation. Um, you know, we've now got also the Reagan-Udall Foundation setting up a review of what's going on with FDA. We've got the inspector general at HHS conducting a review of what's going on with FDA. And of course, you know, more litigation is pending. You know, those original suits, many of them still have oral arguments to go through. Uh, Many of them have not received a decision yet. Um, This this Grippum decision uh, sort of broke while we were on the space here. So I don't think anybody on the space has had a chance to really take a look at that. But uh, we'll be breaking that down and posting about that from ABS. Um, um, Greg did you have any final thoughts
1: while we're here? I'll just note since I earlier made a point of poking fun at people who have been bad with predictions will take a risk and make a minor prediction of my own um, with regard to synthetic nicotine products I suspect if, if FDA is is going to ever in the next few months put out a statement um, talking Saying that suddenly we're going to enforce against these products, I would think that it would wait until October or November, I think is usually when we get preliminary results from either the MYTS or the the DF. And you have to keep in mind that the 2021 survey was half at home, half at school, I think for the MYTS. And that survey found that for those who were still being taught at home, youth vaping was, let's say, 12.1%, and those who were at school were 15.3%. So now if you assume everyone is back in school, even if youth vaping numbers hold at the same exact numbers for in-school from last year, that can be presented as youth vaping rising 15 20 percent over one year hopefully if it happens it's not larger than that uh, but that may be um, you can never really ascribe motives and much thought to fda with what we've seen but that could end up being an impetus for for fda to do something come the winter time
0: Azim, where, uh, where can people follow you to keep up with your work and all of the latest developments here?
3: Sure. Thank you. Well, you can certainly uh, follow me on Twitter. I, I tend to post um, frequently, but ugh, probably slowed down from, from a few years ago. Uh, we also have a blog called the Continuum of com where we regularly write about these topics.
0: Fantastic. I I love the name of your blog, and I wish FDA were still ascribing to the continuum of risk policy because I think that comes from an era when FDA was much more mindful of how their actions affected everyday people who need to quit smoking. And we certainly hope that we'll see the day when FDA goes back to that philosophy, but we are not holding our breath. (laughs) We'll say that much.
1: Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Be sure to tune in to our next Shaping Vaping episode. We are going to get the first ever CTP interview with CTP director Brian King. Uh, Amanda, you get on that, and um, good luck. We will talk to you next time.
0: I don't know about that, Greg. That's a tall order, but I'll I'll probably stalk him down at GTNF. I just saw on the agenda he's speaking, so I think there will be some timely audience questions if he is bold enough to take questions. There we go. All right, thanks everybody, and you all have a great week, and we'll be back with you soon.
2: See you.
0: Okay, thank you. Guys.